So good to see everybody this morning. Hope you're doing well. I don't know if this is a special treat or not, but for this morning in Sunday school, we have a PowerPoint for Sunday school. I know, it's uh, unusual. Um, once we get into the subject matter, you'll see why, because it's, uh, it'll be fast moving, and uh, please don't try to keep up. Um, there will be a lot of stuff to cover. There's going to be a lot of stuff to cover. And I'm entitling this lesson, The Man Who Never Had Enough. The Man Who Never Had Enough. And we're going to talk about Solomon. Um, we're going to do a biography of Solomon. If you'd like to turn to a particular passage, which we'll dwell on uh, later, it will be Ecclesiastes chapter 2. But um, if you don't want to turn there immediately, that would be okay. Because uh, we're not going to get there till probably the very end, and there's going to be a lot of other material. I've tried in the PowerPoint to indicate where I got each of these points from, um, but uh, we're not going to have the time to flip to every one of them, and so I'm just going to uh, reference them as we go. Okay, Let's pray, and then we're going to talk about this man, Solomon, and we're going to race through the material. Father, would you give us grace to understand uh, the lessons we're to learn from this great individual? He started so well, um, and he gave us so many different lessons for us to learn, and I, I pray that this would be a beginning for us of an understanding of this man that you raised up and that you've set before us uh, for many lessons. Um, help us now this hour to um, know your mind and know how to think about this portion of Scripture. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we get into all the things that Solomon had, we have to learn who Solomon was. We've been studying through the book of Exodus, and the Israelites leave Egypt in about 1400 B.C. You can pretty much divide Israel's history up by increments of... Um, uh, 500 years, okay? Uh, about Israel was in Egypt a little less than 500 years. Israel was about 500 years um, after they left Egypt without uh, a, a strong central king. And then about another 500 years, they pretty much ceased to be uh, for the monarchy. Now, those are rough numbers. Don't, don't hold those to the digit. Uh, but that's a good way of dividing it up. <clears throat> well, Israel's been out of Egypt for 500 years, and God raises up a king by the name of Saul, and Saul reigned for 40 years. And Saul was a man that the people wanted. Eventually, God raised up another man by the name of David. And David was the man that God wanted. Now, David was... Uh, a man with clay feet. And anytime we grow to appreciate a man, we very quickly learn that all men are sinners, that no man seeks after God. No, not even one. And any amount of righteousness or holiness that we have is a grace. And David certainly had his moments, had his terrible moments. And David had one of those terrible moments with the woman of another, of another man. It was a married woman. Her name was Bathsheba. 
And David was supposed to be out with his troops, but instead he stayed home and saw a married woman bathing one day. And it was a ritual cleansing, a ritual bathing. She was doing a spiritual exercise. And he invited her into his living chamber, and there they committed adultery. They had a son together, and that son died. God took that son's life. It was a grace to the son, probably because that child would have forever been known as one of untimely birth, (laughs) the product of adultery. Well, Solomon, David, according to 2 Samuel 12.24, comforted his wife Bathsheba. He married her. He brought her into his harem. He comforted her in the wake of the death of her son. And their second son, their second son they named Solomon. Now, how many of you have heard the word shalom? Shalom. Yes, it's much like the word aloha. It means hello, goodbye. (laughs) It also means peace. Now, if we want to say that something is the superlative thing, what do we add to the end of the word? If we want to tell somebody that, 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 that that is the most read we have ever seen anything be read, what would we call it? The reddest. <laughs> In Hebrew, if you want to add, if you want to add a superlative onto the end of something, they didn't put EST on the end of it like we do. They put an ON on the end of it. So you have shalom, and then what do you put on the end of that? O-N, and what do you end up with? Shalomon, Solomon. (laughs) Superlative peace. Exquisite peace. That was the name that Bathsheba came up for her son. This was, we're told, according to 1 Chronicles 22.9, Something that God had told David ahead of time. You're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Solomon, and he's going to follow you. And David wanted to name this son, this second son, the son of his sin, the greatest peace. Likely because he realized he had infuriated the Lord, and God had forgiven him, and he was at peace now with God, whereas before his bones were wasting away. And now he has peace with God and peace with this woman and peace. And this son would represent peace. Now Solomon, before he even rose to the throne, had his throne threatened multiple times. His oldest brother from a different wife, Absalom, rose up and actually took the city over for a few days, a few months probably. He was killed in battle and shortly on the heels of that, another man rose up by the name of Sheba. David's army went after him and had him beheaded. And then there was another son of David's, a man named Adonijah, a man who was spoiled, a a man who exalted himself. And he had his kingdom undercut from him because David found out about the plan and put Solomon right on the throne. And we're told that God established Solomon's kingdom. And appeared to Solomon at night, and he asked Solomon, what would you like me to do for you? 
And Solomon, realizing the scope of this kingdom and the job that now has been thrust onto his shoulders, he said, I, I'm realizing what I need is wisdom. And that pleased the Lord, we're told. It pleased the Lord. He said, because you didn't ask for wealth or for the death of your enemies, but for wisdom, I'm going to give you wisdom greater than any man has ever had. And I'm going to give you the other things you didn't ask for as well. And so Solomon's life began to be characterized by blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon addition, addition. And what I'd like to do for the next several minutes is unfold for you the excessiveness of everything that was Solomon. Let's talk about Solomon's kingdom first. His kingdom was from the Euphrates River all the way in the north, all the way down to Egypt in the south, and across from the Red Sea, or from the Mediterranean Sea, all the way over to the Red Sea. Nobody, no Palestinian king has ever ruled that sort of territory before. Modern day Israel doesn't own that sort of territory, neither did David. None of David's predecessors, or successors, rather, ruled that scope of territory. This is the entire Fertile Crescent, the entire Middle East was Solomon's to rule. It was a huge landmass. When he started, when he started his reign, we're told that he had 1.3 million fighting men. Now, a fighting man was generally between the age of 18 and 30. That's just the men in that very narrow age bracket. We're told that as Solomon was reigning, there was no other rivals. There wasn't any major plagues. The food in the kingdom prospered. There was no um, famines in the land. And so the people had unprecedented numerical expansion because there were no battles to wipe them out. There were no plagues to claim their people. There was no lack of a certain type of food that would keep the population down. And underneath of Solomon, the nation exploded in population. And it says that there were the people of Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Every other king before and after Solomon had problems in their kingdom that limited the population, but not in Solomon's time. We're told that Solomon collected was a Solomon was a horseman. Now, there's a person in here who loves horses. Her name is Betty. And by the way, it is Betty's birthday. Happy birthday, Betty. <laughs> Betty is 39 today, okay? And happy birthday. Solomon loved his horses. He had 4,000 stalls. I don't know how many horses you fit in a stall, but we're told the number of horses that he had was 12,000, so I guess you'd have three horses per stall. 12,000 horses. That's amazing. Imagine all the seats of Vivint Arena where the Utah Jazz play and put a horse in every one of those seats, and that's what you'd have. It's remarkable. There were 1,400 chariots, none of which were built in Egypt. They were imported from Egypt. It would be akin to driving only Mercedes-Benz or an expensive import vehicle. He was a importer of handcrafted goods. He devoted whole cities to the care of these chariots. Charioteering was a complicated form of warfare. 
the horse saddle wasn't invented for many more centuries. And so to ride a horse bareback or to get a horse to hitch up underneath one of those chariots and have a warrior or two warriors riding in them with their swords and their bows and their arrows was a specialized class of warfare. And it required intensive training and as much for the horses as it did for the horsemen. The worst thing that you can have in an army when it was horse-powered was a horse that got jittery. A horse that got jittery could put panic into the entire rest of the army of horses that you have. And so there was, it was a, a remarkable commitment of energy and people and time into these horses. Solomon ruled over 30,000 foreign conscripts. These were just general workaday people. There were 70,000 porters. He had building projects that went all over the kingdom, from the Euphrates down to Egypt. Well, think of that as our modern-day railroad men or truck drivers. How do you get cedar, big cedar logs, from there to here? You have to float them down the river. You have to roll them over rollers. You, well, he employed 70,000 men to do that. He employed 80,000 men as stonecutters. His temp, his, uh, the temple and his palace were made with stones that were as big as boxcars. And he insisted that he didn't want Jerusalem to be filled with the sound of chink, chink, chink of the chisel knocking off the edges. So he insisted that all the stones be dressed on location where they quarried the rocks and then brought over vast distances pre-cut. It required 80,000 workers. If you're doing the math, that's 180,000 workers in total simply for the bringing in of building materials. And all of that required 3,300 managers was a vast kingdom of workers and people and animals. Solomon spent the first several years of his kingdom building the temple, which by all accounts was one of the marvels of the ancient world. Let's give a few points, and these are just the highlights. Like, like seriously, like you walk into a rich man's home and there's lots to marvel at, but imagine... Imagine, I'm going to imagine for a second that Solomon had a desk, okay? Maybe he didn't have a desk, maybe he did. But let's pretend for a moment that he did with drawers. Imagine a, a, a drawer face made of ivory with a perfectly polished gold knob that you could spend all day looking at and marveling over the intricacies of the gold work and the weight, and the smoothness of the slide, and so forth. And that doesn't even get mentioned because of all the other things. These are just the highlights. Solomon's temple, he had stone walls, and these aforementioned stones, and he insisted that no stones were showing. He wrapped the entire temple in cedar. The flooring was made of juniper. Now, how many of you know what the, a juniper tree is? Anybody know what a juniper tree is? Yeah. Go down to southern Utah, drive around Cedar City, look up in the hills, and what will you see? 
juniper trees everywhere. Now, how many of you have ever seen a straight juniper tree? Okay, none of you have. It is an immense amount of work to cut and plane and join juniper boards. And Solomon had all of the flooring of the temple in this cut, planed, sanded, joined juniper. Imagine the aromatic smell in this temple with cedar-lined walls and juniper floors. The inner sanctuary was 30 feet square, 30 feet square, 30 feet wide, 30 feet long, 30 feet tall. And it was completely overlaid with gold. The cedar was overlaid with gold completely in this room. There were gold chains guarding the inner sanctuary. He built a cherubim to sit on top of the altar, and the cherubim were 30 feet, the two together were 30 feet. The wings extended 15 feet each, and they were from carved olive wood. That means a craftsman had to join all of that olive together into a big block before he began carving it out. And then they overlaid the cherubim in gold. The cedar walls were covered with cherubim and carved cherubim and palm trees and flowers The doors themselves were six feet wide and had carved inlays of cherubim, flowers, palm trees, and all of it was overlaid in gold. Solomon was a man of extraordinary wealth. For his, just as a show for his his wealth, did you know that every year Solomon received 25 tons of gold every year. 25 tons of gold every year. Now, in modern terms, that's about $1.5 billion of gold. Now, it was probably more than that, because there is now today far more gold in circulation than there was when Solomon was reigning. And so, I don't know what that would have been worth. I don't know that you could even put a dollar amount on That's what he got every year into his personal treasury, not to mention the taxes that he received from merchants and vendors and all the gifts from other sovereigns. When the queen of Sheba visited him, we're told that she brought more spices than had ever been seen in the land before, and that's saying something considering they lived at the junction of the spice road. We're told that Solomon didn't eat or drink off of anything that was less than gold. He only had gold cups and goblets and flatware and decorations. We're told that Solomon had a throne, this throne. Maybe maybe in heaven God will replicate this throne and let us see it. It was ivory, carved ivory. The ivory was overlaid in gold. The armrests were carved ivory lions. Those two were overlaid in gold. And six steps descended from the throne. And going up, each step on either side were carved, or I'm sorry, were cast gold lions descending down the steps. And this is the throne from which Solomon ruled his kingdom. Solomon took 13 years to build his palace. 
In it, he had a room replicating the forest of Lebanon. It was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide, and it was 45 feet tall. And the thing holding up the walls were actual cedar trees imported from Lebanon. And there were 45 of these pillars that were trees that were imported as they replicated the forest of Lebanon. This was, this was one room inside of Solomon's temple, inside of Solomon's um, inside of Solomon's palace. You know what? I forgot to mention something. Did I say this? I have forgot to mention in the temple, I forgot to mention the Bronze Sea. The Bronze Sea was a marvel in and of itself. The Bronze Sea was 15 feet wide in diameter. It held 12,000 gallons of water. It had a primitive railroad system of bronze railroad carts that would cycle the 12,000 gallons of water in and out of the temple. The pool was held up by 12 bronze bulls that were cast and it sat on, and the pool itself was, it said, about six inches thick of bronze. It's amazing. Furthermore, on Solomon's wealth, he possessed the extraordinary luxury of a navy. He had a personal navy. Now, nations had bankrupted themselves trying to build and to maintain a navy. Navies are extraordinarily costly things. Have you guys ever heard the old adage that boats are holes you throw money into? Well, the same was true then as it is now. It's incredibly costly to build a ship and to maintain a ship, and you lose that ship. You lose years of investment, and there are, there's accumulated knowledge from mariners that doesn't come easy. And Solomon had this personal navy, and it says that every three years they returned with all sorts of spices and treasures and gold and novelties and animals. Solomon was one of the first kings to have a zoo, and he would import odd animals from all over his empire to put on display for the people. These ships would bring them in every three years. They were sent out on three-year commissions and told to bring in something that would surprise the king. Novelties. Solomon had 700 wives, 700 wives, and 300 concubines. <laughs> that is a problem, and I can say that because God said it was. It was a problem. They turned his heart away from the Lord. You know, if he spent... One night per wife or concubine, one night, it would take him more than three years to cycle through them until he got back to the original. And that would just be one night a year, one night per cycle. Well, some, that's a big family he has. We're told that every day, every day, this is his daily consumption, the people in his palace 
would consume 5.5 tons, tons of the finest flour, 11 tons of cornmeal, 10 stall-fed cattle, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, and seasonal game like deer, gazelle, roebuck, and fattened birds. But everything I've mentioned so far was secondary to the thing that people noticed first. People didn't come to see Solomon's ivory throne that was overlaid in gold with the 12 lions descending the steps. People didn't come to see the carved cedar cherubim and palm trees and flowers. They didn't come to see the large standing coppolas or the forest of Lebanon. They didn't come for that. People from all over the world came to do one thing, and that was to listen to Solomon talk. We're told that people came from all over the world to ask him questions, and never was a question too hard for him. He had a mastery of everything from science to biology to ecology to theology. There was no subject that was outside of the scope of his vast mind. For those of you who are students of history, you'll know that Theodore Roosevelt was a man with this sort of mind. And you read modern-day accounts of the mind of Teddy Roosevelt. People don't know this, but Teddy Roosevelt graduated from Harvard and got his law degree from Columbia. Rough Rider. The, he was a every-man's kind of guy, but that was put on. It was an act. The man was brilliant. He read minimum three books, books a day. He would consume vast quantities of information, and he could recall it and spit it out at people. People called the mind of Theodore Roosevelt the seventh wonder of the world. Well, he didn't hold a candle to Solomon. Solomon could talk with exquisite authority on any subject imaginable, and people would sit and marvel at his grasp of everything. We're told that in the Bible he wrote 3,000 proverbs. He wrote 1,005 psalms. I mean, okay, so I've got my little alphabet things, and I've started working on G. A, B, C, D, G. I'm on A, B, C, D, E, F. I've done six very bad ones. <laughs> Solomon did 1,005 good ones. Amazing. Solomon wrote several canonical psalms, most of the book of Proverbs, the entire book of Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. It's a huge section of the Bible that was written by Solomon. It says that the breadth of his understanding was as measureless as the sand of the seashore, and every subject imaginable was under his grasp. Now, I have a repeated slide. That was my bad. Go ahead and go to the last slide, Benjamin. I had you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, or Ecclesiastes chapter 2, rather. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Why don't you turn there with me now? <coughs> Think about everything I just said. Okay, don't look at your Bible yet. Just go to Ecclesiastes 2. Think about everything I just said. The, how many tons of gold did we say every year he would import? What was the number? Trying to find it. 25 tons. How many of you would live with one ton of gold? 
Just one ton your whole life. You guys ever, uh, I'm sure you've heard the fiddler on the roof. If I were a rich man. He says, he says would it spoil some, some vast cosmic plan if I were to inherit just a small fortune? <laughs> just a, a tiny percent of Solomon's wealth. Just give me a chunk off of one of those tons of gold. Think about what the man had. Now let's read Ecclesiastes 2.17. Let's go to 2.18, rather. Or 2.17. I hated life. I hated life. That's what he said. I hated life. Because of what was done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind... I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Well, it turns out the man who had inherited Solomon's kingdom was, in fact, a fool. And Solomon must have known that. The man hated his life. The man who never had enough. He never had enough money. He never had enough stuff. He never had enough animals. He never had enough ships. Never enough horses. Never enough women. Never enough wisdom. Never enough work. Never enough fun. He could do with his stuff whatever he wanted to do. There, was, there are people in this world for whom money is no object. And Solomon was the president of that fan club. And his assessment was that he hated it. He hated his life. At the end of a long life, with all this abundance, he hated it. He goes on to tell us why that is. He tells us in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has put eternity into man's heart. And not even 25 tons of gold a year could fill it. Now think about eternity. Imagine a hole that was in eternity deep. And you threw a rock into that hole. A million years from now, that rock would still be falling and it wouldn't be any closer to the bottom than it was before. Seriously. You could throw however much you want into that hole and nothing will fill it except for God. The only thing, the only person that can fill the hole that Solomon had in his heart was God. And he tried, tried as he might for 40 years to fill that hole with things and women and people and accomplishments and learning. And when he found that it didn't satisfy him, it depressed him. And he said, I hated life. Now remember, notice he put that in the past tense. He didn't say, I presently hate life. He said, I hated life. What was it that brought him out of this funk? Well, in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 26, he had to learn something. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 2, 26. He said, let's begin, pick up our reading in 24. There is nothing better for a person 
than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. What Solomon had to learn, now the NIV translates that word as happiness. Most modern translations do. Joy, happiness, either one. What Solomon had to learn was that contentment, happiness, joy, could never be a byproduct of, his, of your situation. Happiness is never a byproduct of security. Happiness is never a byproduct of the amount of money you have in the bank. It's never a byproduct of a smooth, easy life or your health holding up. Happiness and joy are gifts from God as much as His grace is. It's a spiritually derived attribute that Solomon had to come to terms that he needed from God to accept. And how many of us, and I do this frequently, we fall into the trap of thinking of happiness as a formula. If I could only have this, this, and this, and get life lined up just like that, I'd be happy. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, number one, you can never get it all lined up like that, can you? But even if you were Solomon and you had the means to get it lined up, you would see that it didn't make you happy. And that would make you sad. Sadder than when you started. Because you would realize all your plans came to fruition and you still were unhappy. And your unhappiness then would be doubled. That's what Solomon says. I learned, I had to learn that contentment, that joy, happiness is derived only from God. So, here's the question. How do I get that from God? How do, how do I... How do I ask God for that? How is it that that sort of thing is derived from God to me? Well, Solomon answers that question. Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. <coughs> Go down to verse 13. It's the end of the matter. All has been heard. He's at the end of his life. He has more in his possession than most kingdoms will ever possess. He has more than perhaps any man on the face of the earth with the exception of Nebuchadnezzar himself or Cyrus the Great. Solomon is up there. There's nothing that he couldn't do or have or want. And he says, all has been heard. This is the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. How do, you, how do you derive joy from the Lord? Put God in reverence and order your life according to God's things. 
knowing that in the end, God is the one who's going to bring your life under evaluation. And in the process of pursuing God that way and revering Him and holding Him up, God will begin to allow this mysterious feeling of joy to flood into your soul. I was explaining to one of my kids, we were talking about something, and I was talking to them about their protection. Okay? Their protection. They wanted something, and I said, oh, I, don't, I don't think you're ready for that thing. How many of you parents have had this conversation, this very conversation? If you're a parent, you've had it. <laughs> and I, I said to my child, I said, you know, I, I, need you to, I need you to realize something. And I'm saying this in love, this isn't an attack on you. But I don't answer to you in this regard. I answer to God. I'm not going to stand before you one day and say, how is it that I protected you? I'm going to stand before God and he's going to say, why didn't you protect or how is it that you protected so and so? I'm parenting not in light of you, but yes, in light of you. I want you to be happy and I want you to prosper. But my main priority is my life lived before God. And that's what Solomon is getting at. That life lived before the king, whether with lots or with little, results in joy and fulfillment. And if you try to find joy and fulfillment in any number of the blessings that he gives, that will turn itself around on you and you'll end up even more unhappy and unfulfilled. Take it from the man who could buy the world and tried to, and it was never enough. The only thing that was enough for him was God and pursuing God's Let's pray. Father, would you help us to live our life before you, knowing that your commands are not grievous, quite the opposite. There is in them a fountain of life, joy, and peace. May we exude that to your glory, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.